So open to me your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll be reading the chapter. I've been preaching through the book of 2 Corinthians, a wonderful treasure trove of theology and promises and hope, as well as a laundry list of sins that they have committed and need to be dealing with and need to be repenting of. Just about to the end, and here in chapter 13, we'll be doing this week, this verses 5 through 10, and next week, the following verses 11 through uh, maybe 13, 13. Now, it said in history and in many commentators when talking about this verse, they all pretty much have the same idea. There are a great many people this very day being tormented in hell because while they lived on the earth, they presumed with great confidence they were right with God. They presumed God was with them in all of their ways. There are also many people who live in peace today, confident that they're born of God, confident that they're walking according to what God desires of them in their life, confident in the things that they have done. They're religious, zealous, and outwardly righteous. But they use sophistry to sanctify their carnal desires and they have no sense of what awaits them when they face our great God who knows every thought of the heart, even the secret things that nobody knows. And he will judge with great and perfect righteousness. There are also others who possibly have been given a new heart. They might be born again but they live a worldly life apart from God. And the indwelling Holy Spirit urges them to see the sinfulness of their sin, to understand the mercies of God in Christ. And the Spirit within them calls them to grieve for and hate their sins and turn from them to God. Sometimes they listen and for a brief season they turn away. But often they deafen their ears, blind their eyes, harden their hearts, and continue with the life that they've always lived. It's to these kinds of people in Corinth, as, as well as everywhere through all time, that Paul is writing in this chapter. And so I want to read chapter 13, and then we will consider our text, verses 5 through 10. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while I'm absent, as I did when I was present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not be, do wrong. Not that we may appear that we have met the test, 
but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up the church and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss, all the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we think about this great passage where Paul admonishes them to examine themselves and ask them the question, are you in Christ? We pray that you would, Lord, give us grace to hear the things of the word, to think of them deeply, to chew on them and meditate upon them and come to an understanding of them, apply them in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we consider Paul's call to self-examination as it applies to us, I want to put this in its context. It's always important to do that as Paul tends to drop these little nuggets of great truth in the middle of a discussion about what's happening in the real world at that time, what's happening in his life or his ministry or in the life of the people he's writing to. Paul had in this letter and his previous letters rebuked the Corinthians rather firmly for their many sins. Uh, some of those sins were very notorious and were giving them a bad reputation even amongst the pagans of that day who were about as wicked as you can get. And they were in turn demanding proof that he was speaking for God, that Christ was speaking through him. In that sense, Verse 3, they said, he says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Now throughout this book, we see him battling against these false teachers that were common in Corinth and they were taking over the church. And part of what they were doing was trying to get rid of Paul. They offered as proof that they themselves were the superior teachers. They were the better teachers, the ones you should listen to. Just look at our lives, they seem to have been saying. We have money, and you give us lots of it. We have popularity. Everybody loves us. Even the worldly teachers and even the government respect us. We are skilled with rhetoric and, and sophistry that always goes with it, according to the Greek and Roman philosophers. And they were leading people to follow them because of their success. Right? When you're looking for a guru, a self-help guru, when the world wants one, what do they do? Well, is the guy famous? Is he rich? Is he powerful? Is he a great speaker? And that's what was going on in Corinth. They were being led astray down the path of scholasticism. These people trying to marry the Greek and Roman philosophers' way of proving yourself. And they were disparaging Paul quite severely. He spends the entire letter dealing with the attacks on his person, his character, his ministry, and most importantly, on his gospel. Paul, they said, was 
you know, facing stiff opposition from the Jews and from the Gentiles, both. The government did not respect him. They put him in jail. The Jews did not love him. They flogged him and beat him with rods and stoned him. His, his, his message is obviously not acceptable, not good. Why did they do that? Well, to the Gentiles, he was telling them the idols that you're worshiping are not idols at all. At best, they're demons. There's no value in them. You need to turn from them. What was wrong with the Jews? He was telling them that salvation does not come through your false belief that you'll be weighed in a balance and your self-made rules that you live by. As long as you live them and do them, you'll win points and you'll be able to go to heaven. It doesn't work that way. God looks at the heart. It must be perfect. It must be pure. Without the blood of Christ to wash your heart whiter than snow, there's no hope for you. And so the Jews picked up stones. They wanted to kill him. But they're saying, no, see, his own people don't like him. The Gentiles don't like him. His message is no good. It was a terrible situation he was facing. He was also living in poverty. They weren't giving him funds. He was at one point tent making. Other points he was waiting for churches that he had that were established and mature to send funds to help him without asking, of course, but he says, well, they said this shows his weakness and why you shouldn't follow him. He said, this is what it means to be a Christian. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. For if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, John 15, 18, and 19. Now, Paul is saying, what life I live is the true Christian life. The ministry I have is the true Christian ministry. The reactions I get are from the true biblical doctrine of salvation, the true gospel. He says, the godly, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. Jesus also says to take up your cross daily and follow him, Luke 9.23. Now, Paul is giving those kind of arguments, and they're giving the, no, you want to be successful, you should follow us. Who's right? Who will they follow? That's what brings us to this verse 5. That's our context. Paul tells them to examine themselves. And what they are looking for is, are you in Christ Jesus? Is Jesus Christ in you? Are you in the Lord? Are you walking faithfully with the Lord? Now, if we walk in the darkness, we cannot walk with God who is light, and we cannot walk in the light with him. And so that is what he is asking them. He says, or do you fail to meet the test? In other words, do you not have a new heart? Do you not have a new life? Is the true ministry of God, is the truth of God not relevant to you? Because you have no place with God. That's the first implication of what he says. Do you fail the test? This was a major problem in Corinth as Paul was writing to them and has been a major problem afflicting the church of all ages. And I'm talking about the Old Testament, Jewish nation, the biblical times, and even in our times today. People will often follow the pastor who's successful, the pastor who has thousands of followers, or thousands of people in his church, and hundreds of books being sold all around the world, translated into every language. 
But that's not necessarily the one who's the most godly. It's the one who's the most desirable to hear. Right? We all have itching ears. We want to surround ourselves with people who tell us pleasant things. We want to leave church feeling, ah, I'm good. God's not going to punish me for that. But it doesn't work that way in reality. The world and the fleeting pleasures it's often it offers often seem more appealing in our eyes than taking up our cross and following Jesus. That's just the way our hearts are. Like Esau, we want to live for the moment. What's in it for me now, today? What do I get? I remember some Christians in Cambodia weeping and coming to me saying, you know, we became Christians. They said, when you become Christians, God is with you and everything will be good. And, you know, we're being persecuted. Our family has forsaken us. Our neighbors won't help us plant rice. You ever see in Asia, poor countries, you see all the village out there in a row planting rice. If they don't help you, your rice isn't going to grow right. So it's a terrible catastrophe for them. And they say, why? And tell them, because those who love Christ Jesus and want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted in this life. Take up our cross daily. Don't envy the wicked. Feel sad for what they face in eternity. And we looked at various verses to help them, but we all at times have that temptation, that desire. I want more than I can get living a Christian life. It's hard. So like Esau, we do we trade eternity for the moment. We trade the future for now. Some in the covenant community, the Jews in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, have never actually known God. And that's why they're not following Paul. They say, well, Paul is talking gibberish. What's this new heart, new life, new obedience? It's restrictive. It's not what we want. They've never known him, but they're in the church. And sadly, it happens with our children sometimes. They don't have a new heart from God while they're little. And for some of them, I've known people who were raised in the Christian church who became Christians in their 70s and 80s. Yeah. There's that time where they don't know God. And for some, they never know him. But more sadly, there are some who seem to have been converted, you seem to have the spirit in them. But day by day, they grieve the Holy Spirit within their heart because they live a sinful, worldly life. They grieve the spirit for whom they were sealed for that great day of redemption, Ephesians 4.30. Which these troublemakers Paul's dealing with are, it's hard to know. Uh, he speaks pretty clearly about their leaders and teachers. But the people who follow them, some of them need to repent. Some of them need to turn away from the wickedness of believing in the things they're being taught and come back to the things that are becoming scripture that Paul is teaching them from the Old Testament and as he is writing the New Testament. If they examine themselves and correct their past and submit with meekness to the word that's been implanted in them, there's great hope. They can turn away. They can always come back. There's no point where God says, you know, I'm fed up with you. Get out. There may be times when God brings heavy discipline upon us, consequences for our sins, but there's never a point where he loses patience. If he has called you, if you're his child, we will pursue you for life. 
It's never too late for them to repent. The godless, Paul has already written about them. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, but for they are folly to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Now, a person who has not been saved cannot understand what we're talking about in being born again. They can't understand what it means to have the Holy Spirit in their heart. They can't understand the doctrines of grace because they don't have the Spirit to enlighten them. And so Paul has written them. They just can't understand. They don't want to know what it means to be born again, so they think they have them. The promise of the old in the Old Testament of the new covenant to come in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 says, And I, this is God speaking, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, when you have that new heart, you have a transformed life. Many stories I have read of people converted as adults talk about the person they were and the person they became. I was a bitter, resentful atheist myself until I was 27 years old. And when I went to church, I decided one day to go to church, and I went from church to church to church, never hearing anything. I did hear a great message from the assistant pastor's wife, but how hard it was to be an assistant pastor's wife. But that was as close as we got to the gospel. And I mentioned it to a friend at church, and he brought me to his church, a Bible Presbyterian church. And the pastor was, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He was a great preacher. And I went home thinking, now I understand and he came to my house and explained the gospel to me, and I believed. And my co-worker, he said, when I went that Sunday and we, we were at church and I talked about you know, how I'd come to believe in God, he said, all week long I wanted to pick you up and shake you and ask you what was happening in your life. He goes, you were such a different person. You know, when we have been saved, when we have been transformed by the power of God, taking out that heart of stone and putting in that heart of flesh and causing us to want to be what Christ is, holy and righteous and just. We want to live that life that Christ has lived. We have that transformation that has happened. Nobody who's not experienced that can understand what we're talking about. Muslims have a similar claim. All religions tend to have a claim where you've come to some epiphany and you've changed your mind. It doesn't compare to the power of God's spirit working in our hearts. And that's what Paul is trying to bring them to. Did you have that power of the Spirit of God working in your heart? Or do you not? They don't understand what it means. They cannot discern these things. And when they examine themselves, sometimes they're deceived. They think, oh, yes, I had that. Not necessarily. If they don't know God, they can't tell the difference. Peter was dealing with similar problems to this. And in his second epistle, he says, Brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. 2 Peter 1.10. Now, what was he talking about? Good spiritual qualities. He had given a partial list of them. And that's where 
we're going to look a bit later when we talk about the application. In verses 6 and 7, Paul is talk, brings this to them, well, to them and to him. You examine yourselves. Have you seen this great transformation in your life? Do you know God? And ultimately, the question is, how did that come to you? Through the ministry of these false apostles? Or through the ministry of the word? Through Paul? Now, was not Paul the minister of the new covenant, 2 Corinthians 3.6, an ambassador of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20? Did he not preach them the whole counsel of God, Acts 20.27? He didn't soft pedal anything. Even if they picked up stones to kill him, he told them what they needed to hear. This epistle, as I mentioned, is set against the scholastic enemies. They peddle God's word, 2 Corinthians 2.17. By peddling, you know, give them what they want so they'll be pleased with you and you get what you want. How many people want to hear condemnation for their sins? You know, not even believers, we struggle with hearing that sometimes in church. The unbelievers don't want to hear it. Many believers go to churches where every day is a good day, where there's no message that pricks their heart, no message that cuts them to the bone and tells them they need to repent, no message that exposes that perhaps they don't even know Christ. They peddle God's word. That's what he calls his opponents. He also says they tamper with the word, 2 Corinthians 4.2. They they modify the things that upset people, turning upside down different things. I remember talking to somebody who had a who was from uh, part of Asia. I can't remember the Burma, which is not called Burma anymore, but I forget. Myanmar, Myanmar, and the Bible. One of the Bible translation there reverses the genders in Paul's definition of how. Authority goes. You know, the wives should submit to the husband. It says the husband should submit to the wife because they're a matriarchal society. That kind of thing is tampering with the word. You, you want to change it and make people comfortable with what it says. And these people were doing that apparently because he condemns that. He says, We do not do that. We're not looking for popularity with unbelievers. We're looking to see the power of God transform souls by giving them the truth they need to hear. Truth they don't want to hear most of the time, but truth they need to hear. These were the ones Paul wrote to Timothy about in 2 Timothy 4, 2-4. Now, they will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That was happening throughout Paul's ministry. They were looking for some other teacher to come along and make it a little easier, make it a little happier. Make it so they can leave church boosted up and confident in their salvation and not worrying about their lives. So the question Paul is really asking here is whose ministry miraculously saved their soul? Was it not Paul's? You know, if you look in yourself and you see Christ Jesus living in you and you look, where did that come from? Well, Paul, the ambassador of Christ, Paul, the minister of the new covenant, gave us the word. And the Spirit came in and transformed our hearts. That's basically where he's trying to drive them. Why are you following what appeals to your human nature when you've seen the miraculous power of God? 
and it's not coming from the same source. So who's miraculous, whose ministry miraculously saved them? And in chapter three, the first three verses, he talks about, do we need a letter of recommendation? Are not you our letter of recommendation? And why were they his letter of recommendation? Because they've been transformed from paganism, from Satanism to Christ. And they were living a new life. And it was very obvious to all. So it was Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, using Paul's teaching and Paul's ministry and Paul's work, that saved them. And that's what he's basically asking them in verse 6 to 7. You know, you should see, if you have the Spirit of God in you, what's going on here. In verse 8, and 10, 8 through 10, he gives his purpose, his goals. And there are two basic items. I need to keep moving. All right, we'll run out of time. I usually have 45 minutes and take 55, so. Uh, so he has two basic goals. The first one in verse 9 is that these believers who are foolishly given into the sophistry of these false apostles should realize their error and turn from it. And the second one is really like it. It's that they have turned before he returns and has to be severe with them. In other words, Paul was planning on heavy church discipline to, to keep the church from rotting from within by dealing with people who won't repent. And he is hoping that this letter would take them away from that. So that's the context. And we've talked a lot about what it means already. But I, I want to look a little bit at the application. Testing ourselves is the duty of all Christians. And he's given that duty here, and we see it elsewhere in the Old Testament, the New Testament. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Well, what does it mean to be in the faith? We talked some about it. Are you truly converted or not? Do you have that new heart? Do you have that new spirit? Are you, is that new spirit causing you to want to walk in the ways that, that God has prescribed? In obedience. If you do, wonderful. If you're not sure, if God may not have fully worked in your heart, you know, is he starting that process? Do you see the true sinfulness of your sin? Many times you hear people, that, oh, you know, it's a minor matter. It doesn't hurt anyone. They're not seeing the sinfulness of their sin against a perfect and holy God. And so... That's part of what we examine ourselves. Do we really see our sin is disgusting and repulsive? Our sin is something that God looks at and says, stand over there. I don't want to be seeing such wickedness in my, in my church, in my world. If you understand that, do you start to understand the mercy of God? He sent Christ, his only son, to die for our sins. You know, do we perceive that in our heart? Do we know that? Do we understand it? Now, when people have come to that process, through that process of hearing the gospel and learning about Christ, they get to that point where they're, they're intensely grieving for how they have offended a perfectly righteous and perfectly holy God. There's no thought in their mind of, you know, this lordship salvation, well, I'll take Jesus as my savior, but I won't obey him for later. 
There's none of that in their hearts or minds. They see the price that was paid for their sin. They see Christ nailed to the cross, the wrath of God poured out upon him to pay for their sins, and they're grieved by how they have offended God. And so with great disgust for their sins, they turn from God, fully intending and striving after that new obedience that is called for in the gospel. For us believers, you know, we say, oh, we're pretty good on all of that, but are we really keeping up with it? The promise of the new, custom, new covenant was that we would be caused to want to walk in the statutes and be careful, statutes and be careful to obey the rules of God. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And he will dwell in us. Why? Well, it's intricately linked with our being careful to obey God. But whoever does not love me, he continues, will not keep my words. And the word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. John 14, 23 and 24. You know, our obedience is a great indicator of where we are standing with God. Not just how perfectly we obey, we can't be perfect, but how much we despise our sin and how much we desire to be obedient. Part of the self-examination is to see where we stand with our own sin. Do we hate it? Do we feel it is repugnant? We feel that God cannot allow that in his presence and therefore we are not going to be in his presence in prayer or perhaps even in eternity because we love our sin more than him and we won't turn from it. Jesus commands us to keep his commandments. Now, I've heard people say, oh yeah, but what does Jesus really command? As if somehow they could get around it and say, I only have to obey these little things. Now, Jesus had a very high view of the word of God. He said, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the law there being the first five books of Moses of the Bible and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Not the least stroke of the pen, like the difference between a capital O and a capital Q, or the smallest letter will disappear. All of it is God's rule, God's word, God's requirement. And so that's part of the test, the biggest test. It's how we feel about this obedience. Oh, that's nitpicking, we don't need to do that. Oh, that sin doesn't hurt anyone, it's not serious. Or that we should fulfill God's law to the best of our ability. And where we stumble, where we're stuck, where we're struggling, where we've never been able to overcome, we really hate that sin in our heart. God doesn't expect perfection. He knows that in this life, none of us will achieve it. He expects us to hate our sin as much as he does and to try to do better day by day. The third thing, we need to look for is where are those things in our life that we should prove? And Jesus said, I am the vine and my father the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it might be more fruitful. John 15, 1 and 2. Number of places in the Bible it says, you know, the tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. What he's saying is if they're fruitless, not that they don't have bad fruit, but if they don't have good fruit, they're being thrown in the fire. But those of us who are producing fruit, we're already a believer, we're doing good things, we're, we're living righteously in many areas. What happens? We get those pieces of dead wood sucking the life out of us. God comes along and snips them off. It's not a pleasant experience. Those sins we have, that worldliness, those things we have, like pride, God will humble us. Greed, God will give us poverty. Self-righteousness, public exposure of our sins. Now God has a way, rather forcefully, of disciplining us. And how many of you would like to be disciplined? Huh? Isn't it better to begin to say, oops, fix that. I'm okay. Now we go in preemptively and say, these are the things in my life that are sucking away the juices of good fruit, keeping me from being productive for God, things that distract me from the kingdom of the Lord or that lead me into temptation and lead me into sin. And so when we examine ourselves, we look for those things that we can cut off before God comes and cuts them off for us. Because if we do it ourselves, it's a lot easier and more pleasant. I have to give myself D12 shots. And let me tell you, I'd rather give myself a shot than have most of the nurses do it. It always hurts like mad when they do it, but I'm doing it carefully and gently. It's no problem. Now, I'd rather prune the wicked, the foolish, meaningless, distracting, unhelpful things out of my life than have God do it the hard way. And so, those are some of the things we can look at. All of us really need to be examining ourselves, examining our walk, seeing where we are today. Do you not realize this about yourself? That Christ Jesus is in you. We've talked about that a lot already. But remember, he was tempted in every way, like us, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 and Paul urged the Corinthians earlier in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, to be imitators of himself as he was of Christ. We need to walk sinlessly like Christ did. That's the, that's the meaning of having him in us, is that he's there to encourage that, there to drive us towards that, there to convict us of our sin. And he says, unless, of course, you fail to meet the test. People who won't hate their sin really need to worry, do I know the Lord? If I have this sin in my life and I know it's sin and it's obviously sin and the Bible says it's sin and yet I think I really love this and I'm going to keep it secret and nobody needs to know about it. Or I'm going to do it and then you know, pretend that I haven't really sinned in doing what I like to do. You know, raging in anger or being filled with greed, desires, whatever it may be. Do we really, really deal with that in our lives? Do we hate it? So in this brief section, Paul is admonishing them and us to test ourselves. There are many things in scriptures that we don't live to. And the list is probably so long for all of us that you know, we need to focus on the biggest ones. 
It's nice to pick the low-hanging fruit sometime, get something that we can easily correct to give us a little encouragement to build our faith and strength. But we need to work on them. Do we, you know, examine our own hearts. Do we see that new heart? Do we see the transformed life? Are we continuing in that way? Or have we gotten off the track into the weeds? Do we earnestly desire to be faithful to God? <coughs> to be faithful to his word? To do what he has called us to do? And to build on that faithfulness day by day? Examine ourselves. <coughs> Examine ourselves for that sense of Christ being in our heart, for that conviction of sin, that, that pricking of our conscience when we are in the wrong, that we understand that we have grieved God for their sin. We have offended our holy Lord and Savior. Or do we have a hard heart? A heart that's deaf and blind and senseless. So we need to examine ourselves, test ourselves, make sure we stay on the right track. Many a Christian begins well and then goes off in the weeds. Many a Christian goes off in the weeds and someday comes back years later. So that's hard road from then on because they did not take care of their sin when they should. We should examine ourselves regularly. I encourage you to examine your hearts this week, this day, and do it regularly. We get off track, we need to seek God and His Spirit in prayer and in the Word and through self-examination and pray for His strength and His grace to change the way we're going. Help me to really see and hate my sin for what it is. You know, nobody looks at a piece of rotten meat and says, ooh, I want to eat that. They know it'll make them sick. Many people have eaten rotten meat not realizing it. In Cambodia, it was vegetables, actually. They had little parasites on the vegetables they were given to them. And I would never willingly eat those parasites. But the food looked delicious and I was hungry, I ate. Well, that's often the way sin is for us. We, we look at the sin and say, oh, that'll give me my comfort today. My desire will be met today. I feel like this will make it easier for me. And we get the disease of sin in our lives and our hearts. We should be careful, especially who we listen to. There are many false teachers and books with pseudo-Christian authors and Christian names that lead us astray from God. To the testimony, if they speak not according to that word, there's no truth in them. That's what God's word says. Also, we should remember that Paul says here, I pray for the rest, your restoration. That's my purpose. That's my desire. I don't write this letter to you for the joy of being able to beat you up, for the joy of being above you and showing my holiness over you. Never Paul's idea. His desire is to turn them from their foolish ways back to the way of God, that they might glorify and enjoy him forever. And that is my prayer. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the reminders we find in Paul's messages in your word.
especially these little nuggets of great truth that teach us how to live a holy life before you. We ask, Lord, for your grace and your strength that we might glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.